there's a very good chance that they're actively trying to target these businesses to shut them down and cause greater problems with supply chain issues here in the U.S. Introducing the Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mike Carroll and International VP Mark Solomon. Hello everybody, this is Mike Carroll, International President of the IAFCI. Welcome to today's episode of the Protectors Podcast. I am with Mark Solomon, International Vice President of the IAFCI. Mark, how you doing today? Mike, I'm doing great and actually got to hang out with you for a couple of days last week in Chi-Town in Chicago. So it was a, a pleasure uh, getting together with you and uh, meeting some of your coworkers. Glad to have you here, Mark. Thanks for buying lunch, too. We appreciate that. You got it. You got it. <laughs> McDonald's. <laughs> so. Hey, Mark, why don't you tell us about today's guest? Uh, really excited about today's show. Uh, our next guest is a senior threat intelligence analyst at the Verizon Threat Research Advisory Center, working in the areas of information security. Before joining Verizon, he was a consultant at GuideHouse and worked with multiple U.S. government clients in the area of national security, specifically supply chain risk management. Hey, Mark, perfect timing for this guest. Uh, you're not kidding, I'll tell you. And it's been a busy week because we've had the RSA conference in San Francisco and multiple Senate hearings on ransomware and cryptocurrency. So I want to welcome to the show, without any further ado, Abdul Abu Falat from the Verizon Threat Research Center. Hey, uh, Mike and Mark, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Indeed, uh, this podcast could not be more timely. We at uh, Verizon have seen numerous ransomware attacks and uh, cyber attacks increased significantly over the last few years uh, with threat actors attacking critical infrastructure, law enforcement agencies, healthcare providers, municipalities, schools, and other businesses. Uh, Abdul, you're right. I mean, uh, God, the, it seems like things are getting scarier and scarier out there. So can you tell us a little more of uh, what you guys uh, have learned in the recent hearings and, and conferences? Yeah, sure. Um, there's one word that can describe day one and two at the RSA conference in San Francisco. It would be somber. Uh, and nothing more somber than when the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, admitted that the U.S. has not figured out how to prevent intrusions or even sophisticated attacks to networks. She specifically cited the increased commercial availability of offensive tools that make it harder for us to manage, and it makes it easier for other threat actors to basically obtain tools that allow them to engage in very sophisticated attacks in a variety of ways. Wow, that is scary. And this assessment comes as the uh, federal government and the private sector remain on heightened alert about online attacks spiraling out of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the threat of cyber attacks by China and other malicious actors. Yeah, and that's, you know, you bring up a great point there with the war going on, you know, that this was probably something that we could have foretold was going to happen, that these attacks were going to increase as we got more involved in um, the war, whether it's intrinsically or, or indirectly with our support to Ukraine is, you know, I, I assume that our infrastructure was bracing for some increase in tax. Yeah, it's, you know, back in February and March, um, U.S. government agencies 
put the private sector on notice. You know, you got to harden your defenses uh, because you know, our adversaries are going to use asymmetric methods to penetrate our defenses. So uh, th- this is likely to continue. Abdul, can I ask you, not only is there protectors podcast for our members, but it's also for the public. We try to educate the public. For some of the people that listen to our podcast, can you kind of just give a quick overview of what ransomware is and how it can affect people? Yeah, sure. So uh, before I get into that, let me recap what happened with ransomware at the Senate hearing. And I think that will probably give a little bit of context to uh, the listeners, if that's okay with you. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Very good. Um, so the hearing on ransomware and cryptocurrency by the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, they discussed a wide variety of topics. And we also had multiple industry leaders provide their take and recommendations uh, on the issues as well. But I think the biggest highlight was that approximately 74% of global ransomware revenue went to entities either likely located in Russia or controlled by the Russian government. Um, there was also recognition that ransomware attacks will continue to be a national security threat for the foreseeable future. To go back to your question, you know, what are ransomware attacks and how could they uh, affect the average individual? Um, so essentially, a ransomware attack is a data breach, which involves the encryption of vital data of a business or individual. And that encryption of vital data is essentially used as extortion for a payment. And if that payment is not made in a timely manner, the data that was encrypted uh, will be leaked and published on the open web. And you can think, you know, how could this affect a business? It's very detrimental. Uh, Imagine the kind of data that businesses have, whether it's trade secrets, blueprints, technical data, employee data, personal identifiable information, such as social security numbers, addresses, email addresses, all of that could potentially uh, be leaked online and used by threat actors to blackmail individuals later on. They can use compromised credentials later on to uh, breach networks and do further damage. The, the risk is exponential when a ransomware attack occurs. Hey, Abdul, not only, like you mentioned, not only major businesses, but we had an intern out of our office maybe three years ago that was a victim of ransomware. So it could affect anybody, right? And the only way that she could access her computer, which had all her schoolwork, all her friends' photos, she could not get in, or the only way that she could activate it was to pay the ransom. Is that basically how you can get your information back? Yeah, unfortunately, in order to uh, decrypt the data, a payment via cryptocurrency is required to the uh, threat actor. And uh, more likely than not, they will provide a decryption key only after a payment has been made. Abdul, can you explain a little bit how uh, ransomware is introduced to the computer system? How, how does a computer get infected with it? And, uh, you know, I think you've basically have told us that if you do get it, um, you know, you don't have many options uh, thereafter. So could you explain a little bit to our audience how ransomware is installed in somebody's computer or computer system? Sure. Um Cyber criminals are utilizing a wide range of attack vectors so that they can infiltrate a system or take custody of it by uh, using ransomware attacks like IP address spoofing, phishing, uh, email attachments, and hard drive encryption. 
Um, but the most popular and most common way that ransomware attacks occur is through phishing emails. And threat actors send carefully crafted phony emails to trick a victim into opening an attachment or clicking on a link containing malicious software. So that, that's one way. Um, second way, which is much more sophisticated, is through remote desktop protocol. Um, I won't delve into it too much. However, you know, once a hacker has gained access to machines that have an, a specific open port, they often brute force the password so they can log into the system as an administrator. And then it's only a matter of time. Hackers can get into the machine and, and initiate encryption operation to lock down the data by purposefully slowing or stopping critical processes. And then something that we've been seeing a lot lately is uh, attacks on unpatched systems and software, which is essentially a weakness in the software where a threat actor will, will take advantage of a vulnerability. And in some cases, when the software is not fully up to date or patched, attackers can enter networks without having to harvest any credentials at all. Hey, Abdul, can I ask you, is this a sophisticated group? I mean, is there one part of this organization that tries to get into your computer through phishing? Is there another part of this group that accepts the cryptocurrency from the victims? Is there certain areas, you know, that the uh, people that are involved in this belong to? So the first group to accept cryptocurrency, it occurred in 2013. That, that was the first documented instance of ransomware that required cryptocurrency to decrypt data. Ever since 2013, almost all ransomware groups now require uh, payments via cryptocurrency. Now, uh, there are certain groups that are purely financially motivated, like Lockbit. They publicly come out and said, hey, we are apolitical. Uh, we're in this for the money and nothing else. And then there are groups like Conti who are not only financially motivated, but politically motivated. And recently they came out and uh, announced their support for Russia. And they've been targeting mainly uh, companies based in the United States and Europe. And uh, yeah, th their main uh, objective is to uh, sow chaos in the West and uh, attack uh, companies that you know, are based in the United States and in Europe. And Abdul, I know we want to get on also to some of the other top threats that you guys are seeing, but before we kind of jump off with ransomware here, this is a very vulnerable time for the United States uh, with the COVID, with inflation, with um, supply chain demands. You know, how vulnerable is this country from being attacked by ransomware or other attacks? And how significantly could it worsen our condition here? So from a geopolitical perspective, our adversaries know that they cannot contend directly with the United States and its allies militarily or through conventional means. However, there is this perception that is growing that the United States and its allies do not have the political will to engage in direct military adventures abroad, which is in a way weakening the West's deterrence. So what we've seen over the last decade is our adversaries have resorted to more asymmetrical and unconventional methods of warfare. This includes some of the things that you had mentioned, cyber attacks, disinformation, economic and supply chain warfare, and providing support for groups to extort U.S.-based companies through ransomware. And these methods require little resources and yield high reward if successful. So as long as that is the reality, 
adversaries like Russia, Iran, North Korea, China will continue to utilize methods like ransomware attacks and disinformation to attack the United States because they can't contend with them directly militarily. So it's conceivable that these countries are, are working and, and possibly working together to attack businesses here, whether it's baby formula, whether it's petroleum companies. Um, you know, there's a very good chance that they're actively trying to target these businesses to shut them down and cause greater problems with supply chain issues here in the U.S. Yes, um, essentially uh, to cause civil unrest, to cause discomfort to civilians, to pit Americans against one another, it's uh, it's death by a thousand cuts, essentially. Yeah. Hey, Abdul, can you tell us like what are our uh, adversaries doing in the area of information security that our listeners should be aware of? Sure. Um, in this era, data is very valuable, and we saw that recently with uh, you know. Elections, recent elections here in the United States, Cambridge Analytica, the use of data to target certain demographics with ads and uh, you know political messages. Um, when data is used that way, it can cause civil unrest and, and issues within society. So our adversaries, um, they've weaponized data in a way to uh, pit Americans against and citizens against one another. So whether that's you know conducting the cyber attacks on a company and taking that data, posting it on the open web, so that uh, threat actors can utilize that data to then blackmail individuals, or whether it's uh, conducting a supply chain attack like solar winds or um, a ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline, our adversaries are doing all of this to uh, sow chaos and divisions. And again, it's because it requires little resources, little cost, and it yields high rewards. And Abdul, in addition to ransomware, what are some of the top threats that we're seeing here in the United States, whether it's being targeted at government institutions or businesses here in the country? What are you seeing? So um, new technology will lead to more vulnerabilities and consequently new exploits. So... You know, in addition to ransomware, zero-day exploits is one threat that organizations have to contend with. Uh, supply chain attacks uh, are another uh, threat that uh, organizations have to contend with. And when I say supply chain, you have to uh, differentiate between hardware supply chain and software supply chain. Hardware supply chain, we're talking about you know the nuts and bolts that go in your electronics, the semiconductor or the chips that go in your phone. And then when, when it comes to software supply chain, this is the technology, the tools that organizations use to maintain and operate their businesses. Some, some would say it's a technology stack, others would say it's a cyber supply chain. It's all the same thing. And you know, in the past, we used to have to only focus on our hardware supply chain. You know, basically, who are we doing business with? We got to make sure we're not violating uh, FCPA, we're not violating OFAC. We got to do our due diligence and make sure that uh, our tier three and four suppliers uh, are not based in countries that are adversarial to the United States. Now we have to do more due diligence when it comes to our software supply chain. And for example, our we have a supplier that uses a specific software 
that may have a vulnerability and that vulnerability may lead to technical data being leaked, even though that software is not being used in your operations, since your supplier is using it, you are indirectly affected by it. And then your data is then uh, leaked in, on the open web. So what we're seeing now is businesses putting in their contracts with suppliers that, hey, you need to let us know what's your technology stack. What software are you using? We want to make sure that it is in compliance um, and it is, uh, you know, not uh, left, not not vulnerable to, to cyber attacks. So, you know, a lot of businesses are now taking matters into their own hands and requiring that sort of uh, transparency from their suppliers, which is good. And uh, it's, it's going to lead to uh, better outcomes in terms of uh, security. Abdul, you mentioned earlier you were at that uh, conference and keynote speaker when asked about the future with cyber threats, he said somber. How do you feel about the future as far as cyber threats and what recommendations would you make to like policymakers to mitigate these uh, threats in the future? So if there is uh, a recommendation I would make is uh, improve reporting and information sharing in order to disrupt the existing, you know, cyber attacks and ransomware ecosystem, it is important to improve and standardize reporting to empower policymakers and government agencies with the data they need to investigate, attribute, and disrupt cyber attacks and ransomware and supply chain attacks. Um, information sharing should be improved and reporting incentivized. Information is not currently shared in a consistent or reliable manner and it does not always reach a broad enough audience. In fact, you know, there's currently underreporting of ransomware and cyber attack events, which obfuscates the true scope of the issue and means that law enforcement does not have all the necessary information to prioritize and investigate cyber attacks. Um, another recommendation I would make is you know, ensure that government agencies and the private sector have adequate funding for training tools and resources they need to conduct investigations. You know, as ransomware groups adopt further money laundering techniques, it's critical for the United States government to keep up. And uh, government agencies that have embraced investigative tools uh, like blockchain analysis and uh, incident response tools have seized millions of dollars in cryptocurrency and successfully shut down ransomware groups. So, uh, you know, we're, we're taking the right steps. We've mandated that businesses that are considered critical infrastructure industries, we've mandated them to uh, report. However, all other industries, it's completely voluntary. Is that something that uh, Verizon Threat Research Advisory Center, is that something they do collecting information? Yeah, here at Verizon, um, you know, we, we work with clients when it comes to uh, mitigating cyber attacks and, you know, taking uh, a reactionary approach when there's an incident. In fact, um, in the latest Verizon data breach investigations report, we analyzed over 23,000 incidents. And we had the help of over 88 organizations and countries contribute to the, uh, the Deber report. But again, you know, the Deber report takes one year to compile. What we need is, you know, something that there's a, there's a constant stream of data housed at a central authority, central location that allows any entity or organization to access and help mitigate future cyber attacks. 
And Abdul, I'm a, a huge fan of Verizon for a number of years because of that data breach investigation report. I uh, always download it year to year. And, you know, this year I noticed that 82% of the breaches involved human element. Can you explain that a little bit more? You know, people think of a data breach and it's a bad guy infiltrating a computer system. But in reality, they're actually getting the victim or a human to sort of participate in that breach. Is that correct? Whether it's un- mostly unknowingly, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, believe it or not, majority of data breaches are due to user error. And that's, uh, you know, the user unfortunately clicking on something they're not supposed to or uh, you know, downloading an attachment uh, and opening it when they're not supposed to. Um, and, and I want to preface, I do not like blaming the user. The user has enough to worry about you know, there has to be tools and mechanisms in place that filter these types of, you know, emails or even phone calls before they reach the user. Sure. So, yeah, some people like to say, hey, it's user error. I like to say, no, it's just, uh, it's a flaw in the system in place because that should never have reached the user to begin with. Um, So, yeah, unfortunately, it it is uh, due to that. And you're right, it's not a blame issue, but but I think it stresses the importance of education and an awareness of the various cyber threats that are out there. Uh, you know, if you own a company, you own a business, this needs to be a critical part of your training and education of your employees, it sounds like. Oh, definitely. And, and that's why a lot of organizations are going to a zero trust model where, you know, uh, we can do a whole podcast on zero trust. But it essentially takes the human out of the equation. And uh, we're seeing a, a huge movement towards that. Uh, but, you know, this, this leads me to you know, another recommendation for the average individual. Have an investigative mindset. If you're not expecting an email, investigate it. Don't click on everything. You know, see what it's all about. And if you're not expecting a phone call, my suggestion is let it go to voicemail. If it's that important, they'll leave you a voicemail. By examining and analyzing messages that you're getting and links that you're receiving, whether it's via SMS or email, you're more likely than not to not click on that or download that Mm. attachment because you've done your due diligence. Yeah, it almost seems like, you know, have a little hesitation before you react or or click on something or do something. Abdul, can you give our listeners some uh, tips and advice as to what they should do if they receive a suspicious email or a contact or phone call? You know, what are some of the things that they can do to research uh, before they react to something? Sure. Um, I know Mike and Mark, your past uh, was in law enforcement. And, uh, you know, one concept that always comes up is uh, tradecraft and operational security. And the average individual can also have OPSEC and tradecraft and uh, various techniques that an an average individual can do in uh, mitigating risk is conduct research when you receive a suspicious email or phone call or text message. Google that phone number, Google that individual's name, Google that company. See what's going on, what the, the search engines have uh, on that entity. Um, in addition to that, there are various open source tools that an individual can go into and figure out you know, how big their online footprint is. When I say online footprint, um, you know, what information is out there regarding their email or their credentials, um, whether 
you know, any service that they've used in the past has been breached. You know, one uh, open source database that, you know, is free of charge is haveibeenpwned.com. You put in your email address, it'll let you know which services have been breached that you have an account with. And it'll let you know if your name is out there, your email, your password, your address. So, you know, do your research, utilize multiple open source tools. In fact, after this podcast, I'm going to provide Mike and Mark a document with, you know, very simple instructions on how the average individual can safeguard their information and figure out how large their online footprint is and what measures they can take to mitigate any potential uh, malicious activity with regards to the data that's out there uh, about them. Hey, Abdul, I got to ask you one basic one-on-one question and, and asking you, you know, senior threat intelligence analyst for Verizon, but here's my basic one-on-one question. If I get a link, just say, I'm going to say PayPal, and it's not from PayPal, and it says hit this link. Not thinking, I hit the link. Is there something I could do it right at that point? Should I shut my computer off, or it's beyond hope, I'm, I'm, uh, something's going to happen? Um, so there's various things you can do. You can either a, if you have, you know, uh, you know, windows defender or a sort of, uh, software in place already, it may notify you right away. Hey, this email is not safe, but let's assume that none of that is in, is in place. If you receive a suspicious email, let's say from PayPal, like you had stated, um, you can hover over that link and you can see what that link is in the uh, tooltip. Um, you can also right-click and copy that link, and you can put it into a URL checker. You know, if you Google URL checker, there's a bunch that come up. But I think the best one is VirusTotal. Go to VirusTotal.com, select the URL tab, paste that link in there, and it'll let you know if there's been any reports of malicious activity on that website. Uh, that's probably um, what I would do as, a, as an intelligence analyst uh, when I receive a suspicious email or link. And just, you know, for our listeners, too, you know, I've been teaching identity theft for years in the public. And, you know, I always tell people that, you know what, if there's a day zero virus or malware out there, these hackers, these threat actors, they're producing something. They're testing it against the current virus protections that's out there. And they search and they create something or tweak something until it's not detected anymore. So you could do everything right, but, you know, that you could still get a virus or malware. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's why they're called zero-day exploits. Um, they haven't been discovered yet. And uh, you know, just over the past few weeks, Microsoft has been in the news because of multiple zero-day exploits that have been discovered uh, in their systems. And uh, you know, they're busy patching it, providing guidance on how to mitigate it, how to disable it. But you know, that's the world that we live in. Uh, new technology will breed new exploits. It's a game of whack-a-mole, unfortunately. And uh, as I stated earlier, there's multiple measures that you can take to mitigate uh, against these attacks. But it starts with the uh, software developer and, and making sure that it's always patched. And there's uh, constant audits and uh, code reviews are done on a regular basis. Hey, Abdul, can I ask you, is a certain type of computer safer than other, like an Apple computer, safer than a Dell? Or... Well, um, for someone who's tech savvy like myself, I prefer to use a MacBook, one for its programming capabilities, and uh, there tends to be um, better protection against exploits within a Mac. But obviously, Windows is much more popular nowadays with the uh, 
with the common person and the average person. That's why Windows is overwhelmingly targeted by threat actors. It's purely because of a numbers game. More people use Windows. More people all over the world use Android. That's why Android and Windows are the top targeted operating systems in the world. But uh, the most uh, secure operating system, obviously, is Linux. And then, you know, um, the tech-savvy individuals typically use uh, Mac, and uh, the average individuals typically use uh, Windows. And Abdul, um, you know, if uh, our listeners want to see the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report, uh, how would they be able to access that? Well, the uh, 2022 Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report was released just last month. This year's 15th iteration of our report is powered by 87 contributing organizations, the highest number yet. Our listeners can gain vital cybersecurity insights from our analysis of over 23,000 incidents and 5,200 confirmed breaches from around the world uh, to help minimize risk and keep their businesses safe. A link to the report will be provided in the podcast description. All your listeners have to do is register, and then they will be provided a PDF of the report for their consumption. Yeah, and I'll tell you, like I said, if if our audience hasn't seen this report, it is phenomenal, packed with information, and just really gives you an insight to how serious these threats are and how often businesses are being attacked here in the U.S. So we appreciate the great work that you guys are doing and the partnership with federal law enforcement and the private sector. You know, we are big fans of Verizon. So thank you for what you're doing. Hey, Abdul, can I ask you about Verizon Threat Research Advisory Center? Do you also provide assistance, say an organization or a major business was a victim of a breach or uh, some type of cyber fraud is that something where you where your company also provides assistance to them yes uh, Verizon v track we have m- multiple segments we have threat intelligence incident response dark web hunting um, anything related to cybersecurity penetration testing as well and, and during any given incident we interact with the victim of the attack attorneys forensic investigators, restoration firms, cyber insurance companies, even some instances, uh, law enforcement agencies that investigate these attacks. And uh, throughout the incident, we collect data firsthand, and then we aggregate all this data from the incident. And our experience gives us a unique perspective on the problems that businesses are facing. So, and then, you know, we ingest that data and then we compile it into the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report which, uh, you know, we discussed earlier. But to answer your question, yes. Um, just like many other cybersecurity firms, Verizon VTrack uh, does uh, partake in that. And Abdul, I, I wanted to ask you a question, too, about these uh, threat actors and how they attack a particular company. Do they go right at that company, or are they trying to find some sort of backdoor, um, a relationship maybe with a vendor or something to get access into that computer system of their target? Sure. So, uh, you know, we, we reverse engineered multiple threat actor playbooks. The most infamous one is Conti. Um, so they actually have a selection criteria. And um, the, the criteria includes whether the company is public or private, whether they're based in the United States or not, their revenue. They, they prefer companies that make over a billion dollars. 
and uh, the industry that they're in. So if, if, if you're a company that's in energy, healthcare, or education, you're, you're always going to be a top target for uh, these threat actors. So, uh, and, and there's multiple ways that they infiltrate. Um, so th- these threat actors are almost in a way operating a full-fledged enterprise. And uh, last year, they've made almost over $600 million in ransom payments. And that's just what's documented. Um, it's likely that it's much more than that. So you have these full-fledged organizations that have multiple segments within them. You know, one segment that's constantly innovating on the uh, ransomware strain. You have one segment that's recruiting insider threats within organizations and paying them large sums of money for access to the networks. And then you have uh, another segment of the organization which acts as a like a like a, a help desk for victims. Um, they, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, they actually help victims to create cryptocurrency wallets, purchase Bitcoin and uh, Monero. And they'll walk them through and educate them on what cryptocurrency is um, so that in the end, they're able to make payments and decrypt their data. Uh, it, 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 it's fascinating, to be honest. But uh, yeah, nowadays, it's insider threats um, that pose the biggest risk for large organizations. These threat actors are always on the lookout for individuals who have privileged access within these organizations, and they pay them large sums of money for access to their networks. So that's the biggest uh, risk that uh, organizations face in terms of uh, uh, intrusions. Abdul, my last question would be, these hackers or ones doing the cyber attacks, let's just say over in Russia, are they working out of their garage, their basement, or are they in a office building or a warehouse with other co-conspirators. Do you have any idea how they're doing that? Um, we're not necessarily sure on, you know, what their physical setting is, but one thing is for sure. Um, the state of Russia is providing them safe haven. And in the cyber realm, it isn't financial support that is a top priority. It is essentially a safe haven. If you have safe haven, if you have a sanctuary, a safe space to conduct your operations, then all that's left is a keyboard and mouse. And uh, these threat actors, because they have a safe space to operate, the financial potential is essentially unlimited for them. And, uh, you know, the the Russian authorities turn a blind eye to them because they avoid targeting uh, Russia's allies like Syria and Belarus, and they uh, target Western-based uh, companies, which provides a geopolitical edge to uh, Russia. So it's sort of like a unofficial relationship where they are allowed to do what they want to do as long as they don't upset the government there in Russia. And what about North Korea? Is that a different, you know, situation with the hackers uh, in those countries? Are they more affiliated with state-sponsored type attacks or... Uh, with regards to North Korea, uh, they're, they're more brazen. Um, it's more in your face. Yeah, they're definitely sponsored by the state, and uh, there's there's uh, mounting evidence of that. And uh, North Korea is responsible for the largest cryptocurrency hack in history, uh, just over $600 million, the, the, the Ronin hack, with, which involved Ethereum. So, uh, yeah, um, North Korea, more brazen. Russia, there's more of a tacit agreement between the states and these groups. Um, 
In fact, uh, in a 2016 interview, Putin was asked, hey, why aren't you arresting these hackers that were involved in, you know, the uh, interference of elections? And he straight up said, hey, if they're not breaking any Russian law, so why would we prosecute them? Mm. So, you know, and, you know, here at Verizon, we, we conducted analysis of malware. And there was, there was actual code in the malware that basically the malware is programmed to avoid IP addresses and languages associated with Russia's allies. Hmm. So, so for your listeners, from a technical perspective, the malware that these Russian speaking cyber criminals are deploying, it's programmed not to attack Russia's allies. Interesting. Well, birds of a feather, I guess. <laughs> so. Well, Abdul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You gave us some incredible insight and information in the cyber world as to what's going on and some of the threats that are out there. So thank you for what you do, and thank you for what Verizon does uh, with these reports and arming us with information and knowledge. Uh, we wish you the best, and God, we, I hope we could get you back on the show. You were phenomenal. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it was a pleasure. Uh, happy to come back. Thanks again, guys. You know, Abdul, when we started these podcasts, we had some goals, and they were, you know, a couple of them were to provide information to our members and also to provide uh, a service to the public, and you've covered both of them tonight, so we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Hey, it, was, it was a pleasure, guys. Um, it's, it's a passion of mine to educate and inform the public, and I'm happy to come back and do it again. Thank you again for this opportunity. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Abdul. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Abdul. Be safe. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guest opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.